Before we begin, a note of warning. The language used and the topics explored in this podcast are not suitable for listeners younger than 18. Your discretion is advised. From the Spade and Archer Studios, welcome to Behind the Yard Sign, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to reveal the real world of real estate with your hosts, Justin M. Reardon and Amy Romberg. Welcome to season two of Behind the Yard Sign. I am Justin Reardon. I'm here with Amy Romberg, our new co-host. Amy, how are you? Justin, I am incredibly excited to be here. I have been so looking forward to getting to come on and work with you in this capacity. Thank you for the opportunity, and I'm so excited. Our lovely co-host from season one, Kelly Hanahan, actually moved on to a new position. We're super happy for her. She is jazz. She's like literally in in charge of traffic in the state of Washington. I think that's what she does at least. She was fantastic. Amy was a guest in season one and she did such a fantastic job that when we were discussing with Kelly who should come in and, and be our co-host, Amy was the first name that popped up. I called and asked and I was like, I know you're gonna need like a week or so to think about this and talk to your wife and figure out if you wanna do this or not. And she's like, fuck that. I wanna be it, I wanna do it. And I was like, oh yes, this is so great. So Amy, we're so happy that you oh. agreed to be the co-host. Thank you. I feel like I've got some big shoes to fill. I am a podcast listener and have just loved Kelly's approach to this. Like she brings so much smarts and so much humor. And so I realize I'm stepping in to fill some big shoes here. So thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to put on my RuPaul shoes here real fast and just say, don't fuck it up. Okay. That's all, that's Perfect. All I'm say. Perfect. No pressure, but don't fuck it up. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this idea that when you work with a client, not everybody is going to be happy all the time. And as real estate agents, we strive to make everybody happy all the time. And I think we all know the old adage that you can't make everybody happy all the time, right? Like it's just an impossibility. In our new world of web savviness, there are kind of two ways that you can let somebody know that they did a bad job. You can either tell them straight to their face or you can air their dirty laundry and go out to the entire world. Like those are your two choices, right? Speaking of don't fuck it up, Right. I love that yeah, we just, just were, don't fuck, don't it, fuck it up. Yeah. And here we are. <laughs> I love criticism. I love feedback. Mm-hmm. I love it when somebody comes to me and says, hey, you did a bad job on this or hey, I, what you didn't meet my expectations. And I'm like, thank you so much for letting me know. This is ways that we can improve. This is ways that we can get better. I absolutely despise. I'm not brave enough to tell you to your face. And so I'm just going to put it on the Internet where everybody else in the world can read it. I think that it's terrible. I have made a policy in my life that I do not do that. If I have a problem with somebody, I will write them a personal letter. I don't copy anybody else. But like letting them know like, hey, things are not going well here, but I'm never going to go online and write a bad review. And I learned that lesson because I wrote a bad review for a locksmith. Oh, locksmith came in, tried to install our lock and broke it. I wrote a one star review and I said, came in, broke our lock, refused to refund our money. That was really my only recourse. That locksmith turned around, created 17 fake Google profiles and wrote 17 one star reviews on all three of our offices. <gasps> So our consistent five-star reviews on all of our offices went from consistently five-star, because we have like, you know, between 30 and 100 reviews on each office. We went down to like two and a half stars. Oh. Yeah. You have this process that actually like perfectly illustrates why reviews are so complicated because there's nothing, nothing to base that on. It's all about his frustration with you and, oh, Justin, that sounds terrible. We actually worked with our SEO provider. We're very lucky that we're a big enough company that we have an, an SEO provider. SEO is search Mm -hmm. engine optimization. And Mm -hmm. these search engine optimization companies have relationships with Google. They called Google and they said, would you please look at these 17 reviews that our client got? They are all from the same IP address. And so Google looked at that. And over the course of about nine months, they very slowly dropped off and went away. But Google was (sighs) like, we're not taking them down. And it was almost like they were like, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) We're Google. What a painful process. What yeah. a And when you work so hard to be someone or to be a company that caters to and takes such amazing care of your clients, that must have been like pretty heartbreaking in the moment. And and lesson learned, you know, yeah. I, I'm never yeah. going to write a bad review for anybody ever online again, because I yeah. fully understand how that feels now. It's where it goes. So how do you deal with negative feedback? I think like you, some of my, <laughs> some of my work as adulting in 
in life is been learning to take feedback from other people. And I also think coming from a mental health background and having spent many years as a therapist, it's really an important part of the therapeutic process is to be able to tell, you know, to have a client say, hey, this isn't working for me and to listen to that and hold space for that. And I think it sets me up in the real estate business to, you know, if someone is willing to engage in the conversation about what's not working for them, about what's happening between us or what's happening in the transaction, like you, I feel like that is such a gift. Bring it on. It may be super hard to hear in the moment, but those are the edges. Like that's the learning edge. So I always hope that folks are are willing to have those conversations if there's something that's not working. And that said, you're always going to have the folks that that it just becomes impossible to sort of bridge the gap between you, that you're never going to be able to fully create trust. And I did have my first year in here. So I've had a couple of transactions that were not as smooth. There was one I can think of. This was a review from a mutual friend, someone that I dearly love. So this was a friend of theirs. The transaction went really well through most of the time. And then something got really messed up at the end that was actually way more in the lender's court than in mine. And as a result of that, (laughs) I have not been able to make contact with this client again. I do some things around six month anniversary. Hooray. You know, I did some holiday stuff this year, just like dropping off and sending out cards and included this person in my list of folks and have still not gotten a single word back from all of my attempts to be like, hey, how is your space? How is your house? How are the cats adjusting? I just, it's just cricket. So I have not gotten a negative review online at this point. I'm sure it's only a matter of time, but it's also realizing, I think, I mean, you just can't win them all. You're not going to win them all. My goal is to win them all. (laughs) I just want to say that my goal is to win every single one and it's just not going to happen. Yes. It is an unrealistic goal for sure. But let's talk about what happens when we do get a negative review online. So the number one thing to remember is that you have zero control over the review itself. The review is written, it's there. And the only thing that matters is how you respond to it. Mm -hmm. A non-response is not going to help because it's going to be its only, that's its only weight. Um, And so writing back a response that is both respectful Mm -hmm. and sometimes even humorous can certainly help a lot. We had a client that we had staged his house. It was in a, like an apartment building or a condo building. So it had a common corridor. And in the common door corridor, there was a metal bench that sat out in the hallway that was the client's metal bench. And it was probably something from, I don't know, 1985. It was not at all anything we would ever use in our inventory, like at all. He called us up and he said, uh, the metal bench is missing. And we were like, yeah, it was there when we were there. It was there when we left. And he's like, well, clearly you guys took it. So why don't you just pay me $500 for it? Because I paid $500 for it 25 years ago. And we were like, <laughs> yeah, we're not, we didn't take your bench. We don't have your bench. We would never take your bench because that is not something we would ever have in our inventory. We didn't take your bench. We're very sorry that your bench is missing. While he's on the phone call with me, he says, you know, there's just one more thing I'd like to tell you. And I was like, yes, what is that? And he goes, go fuck yourself and hangs up on me. Oh. And I was like, okay. So he writes a review. These people stole my bench, blah, 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 blah. And on the review, the response to it, I said, you know, this person told us that we stole their bench. He told us we should pay him $500 for his bench. We respectfully declined to pay for the $500 because we didn't take the bench. He then told us to go fuck ourselves, which we also respectfully declined. Because we wrote it with just a touch of humor. Like we got so many, so many people have called us because they're like, you guys handled that so well. We want to work with you. And I was like, okay, just, you know, if I just want you to know if you tell me to go fuck myself, I'm probably going to decline. Yeah. Yeah. Not going to do it. No, No, thank you. (laughs) Hard no. (laughs) It is not one of the services that we provide. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit of humor goes so far to soften edges. It just takes you places that are unexpected. And I could see reading that and just being like, oh, yes, these are my people. This is brilliant. Honestly, like the whole idea was just so stupid, so silly. Yeah. I think one of our bad reviews was because a real estate agent, actually, we staged their house and three of the prints that we used in the house were Chinese block prints. Beautiful pieces of art, original, mm-hmm. so framed and matted in silk, like some of the most beautiful art we own. The agent said, and I'm going to use his exact words here, trigger warning, Orientals are not going to buy this house. Why did you put that art in here? Just for clarification, because I think a lot of people don't know, Oriental refers to objects like vases, 
artwork, pieces of art, things like that. Asian Not refers people. to people. It would be like referring yeah. to an American as Occidental. You would never mm -hmm. refer to Occidental is to Western as Oriental is to Eastern. Nobody ever intends to be racist. We are racist out of ignorance. You know, we explained Asian artwork is not necessarily marketed towards Asian people. We include Asian pieces in almost every room that we stage in every house. We explained it to him. I said, if you really are dead set against having this artwork in this house, I'm more than glad to change it out for you. So we yeah. went and changed it out for him. And the review came back and was like, they didn't stage it right. The owner is smug. He referred to me as smug because oh. I you know, explained to him the difference between Oriental and yeah. Asian. It's not that he's racist. It's that I'm smug. So, yeah. you know, and I tried to be really gentle about the whole thing. And the thing that killed me is that the review came back 36 months after the project ended. Oh, geez. You know, and I was like, hey, if you yeah. had let us know about this three years ago, we could have yeah. definitely made this better for you. But unfortunately, yeah. now that we're three years past the project. I don't know if there's much that we can do for you. Originally in the response, I wanted to include like the whole racist part. And mm -hmm. our PR person at that point was like, dude, you are opening the can of worms. Don't even fucking <laughs> go there. And I was like, All right, I'll just back off then. I don't know. I felt like wronged almost in that moment because I was like, dude, you were so fucked up in that whole transaction. Yeah. I didn't write a bad review about you and I didn't fucking even do anything wrong in that. And I think really what it needed to come down to is that in the mortal worlds of Coco Chanel, she once said, I don't really care what you think about me because I never even think of you. <laughs> You know what? Done. Finished. <laughs> over with. And, and there comes a point where like yeah. people are going to want to write reviews about you. It's like water off a duck's back. You just can't let it get yeah. to you. It's got to just yeah. let it go at some point. Respond. Be professional. Add some humor if you can. Absolutely. Move on. I think maintaining your level of professionalism throughout is something that's also really important because that's yeah. true to your values. That demonstrates you have integrity as a business owner and as a service provider. Once again, you can't win them all. We had a really, really strange one in Seattle, oh. a home stager in Seattle decided that it would be a really good idea for them to create fake accounts and write bad reviews about every single other home stager in Seattle. Now, no, there are only like 15 home stagers in Seattle at the time. Oh, and no. 14 of us got terrible reviews. So we're like, mm. <laughs> now oh, I was oh, super was lucky I because for my particular review, the person created a fake profile, but the fake profile was Ron Howard's wife. You know Ron Howard, the director? Yes. So I think her name is like Carol Howard or something. They used her picture and her name, Carol Howard, and like said, you know, these people staged my house. It looks like a circus in here. It's ridiculous. I'm never going to sell my house. There were cockroaches in their furniture. I mean, like they got down and detailed about the whole thing. But here's the thing. Google has a rule that says oh, that yeah. you are not allowed to impersonate celebrities. So that and got so pulled right off. They were like, well, that's just the wife of a celebrity. And I was like, uh-uh. She is an author. She has been published. She won a Pulitzer or some crap like that. She's <laughs> like a really good author. And so it got pulled off. Mine was the first one to get pulled off because mine was the only one where she imitated or this person uh, imitated a celebrity. I say she because the person they were imitating was a celebrity. I don't know if it's male or yeah. female. But what's, here's what's even funnier is that like two years later, that particular company was owned by two people, but they got mm -hmm. in a fight and started writing terrible reviews about each other. Oh <laughs> and I'm gosh. just watching oh. this. And it was just like so crazy like how bad it got i was like oh, it was I'm all so unraveling yeah. so glad i'm not in your shoes you poor dears yes. you guys must have so much pain <laughs> to treat each other yes. this way was... and to do it and to air it all so publicly it sounds like it just like watching yes. the train wreck that you can't turn away from if we just remember that no matter how bad that review hurt <laughs> the person who wrote it had to feel so much more horrible in order to feel like that was their only way that they could express that it's just a little bit sad and not having the courage to come like the person who wrote you the review 36 months later it's like where's your courage to come forward and say hey this doesn't work for me like can you make this right where's the chance as two people who are human beings trying to make it in the crazy world like can't we find a place where we can meet in the middle so that we both walk away feeling okay about this yeah. transaction and to carry that yeah. to carry All those that months. for 36 yeah. months yeah this is the best time to deserve this cold dish of revenge heck yeah, yeah. this is gonna be great.
It's yeah, so that's funny. tricky. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that it was written with this idea that I wouldn't recognize the story. Like we waited 36 months and surely he won't recognize. Like it was under, you know, a, yeah. an, a slightly anonymous name. And I was like, I know this story because nobody says, please don't hang Oriental art in my house. So that Ori, and I'm doing air quotes here, Oriental people don't buy my house. Like people just don't say that. That's not no. a thing. <laughs> no, no. Amazed. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, we have Chad Derricks. He's hanging out in the green room. I think he's he's testing out the lots and bagels that we got this morning. So Excellent. I hope he's enjoying the hot tub. We had it <laughs> cranked up to like 104 today, so it should be good. Uh, should we go back and get him? Absolutely. I'm so excited to talk to Chad. Let's do it. Chad Derricks, welcome to Behind the Yard Sign. We're so excited to have you. We've been waiting for so long to get you on this show. I can't believe you agreed. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. This is my first time on a podcast. We're taking the V card. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's always been a dream of mine since I first met you, Chad, actually. And there it is. <laughs> I'll, just go, I'll just go right into it. Um, so, Chad, uh, tell us about your journey. How did you get into real estate? Were you a little boy just dreaming about real estate? What happened? I ended up in sales after having a father in sales who I always, of course, looked up to, but I always thought, no way in heck am I ever going to be in sales like my dad. So lo and behold, um, after college, do some odd jobs, the normal sort of rambling 20-something. Just on a whim, I end up getting my real estate license right as we enter the Great Recession. And off I went into the wild world of of real estate in 2009. Did you go to school? Yeah, I went to college in uh, Spokane at Whitworth College and got a degree um, in Spanish language and literature, ever practical, um, <laughs> always thinking through, you know, what is the most sensible vocation? <laughs> Chad, I have a French degree. Oh, okay, so... <laughs> You Here understand. We are. These are prerequisites. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm also bilingual. I speak pig Latin. So we're all on the same plane at this point. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yes. So have you ever taken on a Spanish language buyer? Never once. I, I, I would love to. I think it's just because there's this very transaction specific, real estate specific vocabulary that I just never studied, never, never needed. And so, yeah, no, I've never even worked with a Spanish speaking buyer, at least not in Spanish. Now, Amy, I'd be even more impressed if you'd taken on a French language buyer. <laughs> I unfortunately have not. <laughs> and it's been some years. I'm a little rusty. I, I try and keep up with it here and there. But I like Chad. Yeah, the language is so specific yeah. and it is not language that I it's not vocabulary. I have either. So Chad, I've always known you as a Windermere agent. And so was it like love at first sight? Have you always been with Windermere? When I started, um, the market obviously was moving extremely slowly. 2009, we were in the throes of the recession. Nobody was seeming to buy or sell homes unless they absolutely had to. REOs and short sales were really more the norm than traditional home sales. The first home I ever sold when I went to John L. Scott in 2009 was a high school friend's home. It was a short sale. I had to go with my buyer to the house, see my high school friend, knowing that her mother was selling her house short and couldn't keep the house. It was a really sad time in real estate. And I was on the front lines of it, you know, staring in the face of a friend I'd known since we were probably 10 years old and selling her house. Super tough time. So I managed about just less than a year at John L. Scott. And meanwhile, I was actually teaching tennis lessons on the side. That was my little side hustle (laughs) at the time. I was teaching tennis lessons to someone whose father worked for a venture capital company in Seattle called Madrona. And they were investing in Redfin in its very early stages. Um, Redfin was, I think, like three years old or four years old at the time. He kept saying, you know, Chad, traditional real estate it's great and everything. You can probably make a lot of money there, but you should really check out Redfin. It's this great little company. And I think you'd really, you'd like being part of something. And so off I went to Redfin after about 10 months at, at John L. Scott. And that's where I really got my real estate education. And how long did you stay with them? For about six years. And you've been with Windermere now for how long? Almost exactly six years. Fantastic. Yeah. I remember those times I lost my job. I was a general contractor and I got laid off. I started the company because I was like, well, if I can't get a job, I'll just try it myself. What's the worst thing that can yeah. happen? I I remember it was part of our consult speech originally to ask people why they were selling and where they were going. And every single story of the recession was death, divorce, or job change. And that was it. There was nobody that was selling their houses because they're like, what a good idea to sell your house. And real estate agents like Amy, who've only been in the business for, you know, a year or so, have no idea what that market is like. And there was a lot of tears. It wasn't even like our clients crying. Like I would go home and 
be just sad for people. At that point, we were lucky because we were staging houses that were perfect. They were like three up with two bathrooms, like on a quiet street. All the houses that we sell now are like, you know, weird. They're like they have one bedroom <laughs> on each floor or they're, they're on an off ramp, you know. But back then it was like every house was beautiful and they were only selling it because they absolutely freaking had to. It was such a different market. Chad, tell us about the differences between working in a tech-based firm like a Redfin or a Zillow versus working in a, an old school traditional brick and mortar firm. Like what's the ups and the highs and the lows? It was an incredible place to learn. You know, it's a really high energy company. Um, at the time, it was so young and scrappy that you'd have access to, you know, executives. I mean, the CEO of the company would come and talk to you and knew your name. So for me, as a late 20s, you know, young guy trying to figure out what to do with my life, it was a really exciting place to be. The biggest differences as far as kind of working for a company like Redfin versus being at Windermere is probably the biggest difference is you do a really high volume of transactions there. That's why I say it's a great place to cut your teeth. And folks who ask me where they should start, Redfin's always part of that conversation just because, you know, you get to go get some reps. So at Redfin, you do, you know, 40 or 50 transactions a year and you have really good training. The tools are incredible. Obviously, Redfin's invested a ton in its technology. And so it was a really great place to, to get started and just get a lot of experience. I left Redfin with over 200 transactions under my belt. Just a lot of good stories to call back on and tell clients when I need examples of how you can sort of step in it along the way. And we just saw everything during that time. It was a great place to start. Ultimately, what led me to move over to Windermere after six years at Redfin was just feeling burnt out by the volume. You know, I didn't want to have a transactional experience or relationship with my clients. They sort of come to you through a click um, as opposed to like a referral or a common friend or something like that. It just always felt like there was this degree of separation between me and a client. I love those client experiences where like a friend would call up and say, hey, can you help me? And I could do that at Redfin, but it was, you know, I still had a lot of clients that more just pick you up kind of like an Uber driver. They don't care who you are. They just need a warm body. And so when I left for Windermere, I sort of had like a Jerry Maguire moment, you know, less clients, <laughs> less money. That's okay. Of course, you do make more money if you if you sell enough houses outside of the Redfin business model. That was really not why I was motivated to leave. I, I was just really wanted to to do fewer transactions and spend more time on each one. I think that must be so interesting. Just just my brief experience in this business, Chad, is that the trust. So most of my transactions have been related to folks I already knew and hopefully, you know, loved and trusted me. And I just think it would be challenges of building trust in that relationship and going so quickly. Amazing experience. And also, I would imagine the flow of your business now is just so different. Oh, completely. You know, I do half as many transactions per year as it stands now. And I, I do kind of keep track of where my clients come from. Mm -hmm. Obviously, at Redfin, it was probably 80, 90% from the website, people who just click mm -hmm. through. It's, it is a machine and it really churns a lot of clients. But being where I am now, probably 90% of my clients are people that I've either worked with before since I've been doing this 12 years now. A lot of my clients are on their second or third house or people that, yeah, I just know through a friend and just meet mm -hmm. along the way. The idea, the analogy that it's a click versus a click with Redfin or a technology <laughs> client, you click it and they become your client. Whereas with Windermere or a brick and mortar company, old school, they're a part of your click, like as in totally. uh, QUE. Yes. And that difference is so subtle, but it makes just such a huge difference. And both models work. It's not to say that one's many Absolutely. better than the other. The other question that I get a lot about, can you explain kind of how the pay difference works between working for a large tech firm like that versus being an independent contractor with a brick and mortar firm? I don't know if my info is up to date, but I mean, Redfin always used some combination of a base salary with benefits and a transaction bonus. It was a pretty small transaction bonus. And back when I worked there, it was also based on customer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So they used a net promoter score, which is a really common way that businesses sort of track how loyal their clients are likely to be and how likely they are to refer their business. Net promoter score is still used, but not as a sort of attached to your compensation. Everyone knows how the traditional brokers are paid. As it is now at Windermere, you basically pay a split to the firm and you eat what you kill, they say, but you, you earn <laughs> the rest. Lots of expenses, but it is a business where if you build it, you, you get to reap the benefits of it. So being a new agent, there's a level of safety with having benefits and a salary. If you do no transactions, you're still going to eat. Whereas if you're an independent totally. contractor, if you don't sell anything,
anything, you don't eat anything. It's uh, walking with without a net underneath. I'm a big fan of musician Bright Eyes. When I left John L. Scott, and I remember thinking, hey, there's a lyric there where he says, I'd rather be working for a paycheck than waiting to win the lottery. That's kind of how traditional brokerage compensation feels, is mm-hmm. that you're sort of waiting to win the lottery. You don't get paid for all the effort you put in with, with your clients until they hit the closing table. It's very entrepreneurial. It it is. And you have to have a bit of a lust for that risk factor. I have been asked a number of times to go bungee jumping or parasailing. (laughs) And I'm like, I have enough risk in my life. I'm good. Thanks. My heart drops every time we do a transaction. So I'm okay. (laughs) Got what I need. Thank you very much. Like my life is the amazing race. Yeah. (laughs) All of us every day. (laughs) Totally. What do you think is the thing that separates you from the rest of the pack? Now, you started this 11 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that? 12 years, yeah. So I've seen a lot of agents come and go. I've had a lot of agents that are now, you know, working for a firm or doing something else, not doing it. What do you think has made your staying power work? I do think that I owe a lot to my experience at Redfin. I think it was a really great foundation. It wasn't this lottery ticket where, you know, I made a ton of money. And um, instead, it was just a place where I got good at the discipline of real estate, of working with clients closely, trying to do the right thing. All the good real estate agents are trying to do the right thing. But at Redfin, it was very much part of the first part of the ethos of the business. And I think if you ask any good, successful, traditional broker, they're going to say the same thing, that that's what they do. And I think that's why their clients refer them. I I think that that was just a really helpful way to start was with leadership that was always saying, do the right thing and it'll all work out. So I think in my business now, having that foundation has been really helpful. And I think that's, that's the thing that just builds loyalty in your client base. That's why 90% of my clients are folks that just come because of other clients. It's, it's funny because you say, I think all good agents get this, that they understand this concept. And we work with, I don't know, somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 different agents and all three of the offices. And we see the agents that understand the concept that we are not working on this transaction. We're working five transactions from now or 15 transactions from now when that totally. client comes back and says, hey, this person was really good to work with. We firmly believe that good design cannot happen in the absence of good service. I don't care how beautiful the house is or how fast it sells. If you had a shitty time working with that agent or with that home stager, they are never coming back and they're never going to refer you. In fact, they might even like steer people away from you. Right. And I think a lot of agents don't get that. They see themselves as a lawyer, that it's their job to argue. And it's like, no, 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 your job is to make this easy. <laughs> Totally. The other thing that I, I think is true to that point of, you know, yeah, you're not working on this transaction, you're working on the, the fourth or the fifth transaction is over the years, just working with different service providers, contractors, financial advisor, physicians. A lot of the time when you're working with these professionals, you feel like they present all the options to you. You know, you can do the MDF trim or you can real, use real wood. You can use quartz that's half an inch or three quarters inch. And this sort of set the table for you, but they never really tell you what to eat. I always like when that person will take it a step further because they know me and they understand my needs well enough to be able to say the classic question of what would you do, doctor, if you were me? Or what would you do, general contract, if you were me? That's the other piece of, you know, working in a lower volume model where we have been now for the last six years. I think my clients actually really look for that information from me. You know, the conversation goes deeper. Whereas before, when I was a younger agent, newer in the business, I didn't have the confidence to really say, you know, here's all the options and let me help cut to the chase because I know you're probably wringing your hands over this decision. I were you, here's how I would be thinking about it. And I've watched 25 people just like you either go this way or this way. You know, here's why you should step up a little bit and buy the single family detached house instead of the townhouse. Even though the townhouse is so much shinier, you'll be happier in the long run, even though it's you know less square footage, a little bit of old wiring. I've seen the people who get pushed out of their townhouse because they have their second kid on the way or whatever, whereas the house would have maybe lasted them a little bit longer. And those kind of conversations, I think, with that mindset of it's not a single transaction. It is the life of the client that you are trying to earn their business for that fifth transaction. And, and I think those conversations are where you really earn the trust. Love this idea. I mean, as far as your trajectory of, it sounds like you came into this business you got in fast, you got in hard, you got an amazing foundation. Now stepping away from that, I mean, I guess you're six years in, but having the opportunity then to build the relationship piece and the trust piece, I bet that's really satisfying. Totally. I think about this idea that like, you know, as an average human, not a real estate agent, I sell a house every seven years and I go through that transaction process. 
process, you know, roughly every seven years. And you guys are doing this seven or eight times a month. I mean, the best client is the one that realizes that you've done this before and actually listens to you. But we've all been with that client that is like, well, I'm actually the vice president of HP and I know everything about not only my job, but your job as well. <laughs> and so how do you manage that client that is like, thanks for the advice, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. Do you just step back and be like, all right, well, I'm just going to watch you fall into that canyon there. Like, sorry. I can't wait to hear this answer, yeah. Chad. <laughs> yeah, boy, I was hoping you'd answer it, Amy. <laughs> Those clients still exist. I mean, I'm 38 years old and I've worked with several clients that are older than me, 20 years older than me. And there is still an element, I think, of finding your sort of your voice or something. I mean, it sounds like a Pixar comment to say or something, but finding your footing, knowing your value. And I've worked with clients where I did feel like they had a more transactional mindset about it or, or more like I was the person they had to tell to take the action, but I, I really was just sort of standing between them and, and that action. And it's a lousy feeling. And, and frankly, one benefit of working for yourself is that you don't have to work with those people if it's not going to add to your life in some meaningful way. And I do think that because what what you said, Justin, you know, it's it's a different kind of click now that, that sort of brings the business. I do think that there's a nice sort of organic way in which the right people find you. And those people who will look to you to be the expert. I, I think as far as working with those clients, you can try to slip in the value adds and still make them feel like, hey, you may not always be asking for my advice, but I'm going to find ways to bring it because it's still going to help us all get to the end goal that, that you want. Beautiful. I love it. We are now coming out of this period. Uh, we've been in this for a year now, our lovely friend COVID, which has kind of tainted every piece of media that is now out after 12 months. As we start to come out of this weird year of 2020-21, how do you see your business changing? Is it going to just go back to the way it was before COVID or is it going to be something different? Is it a combination of the two? Are we always going to wear masks during showings? Like, what do you see <laughs> big changes that are coming down the road? I I work a lot in the city of Seattle, my primary market. I work in Mercer Island as well. That's where I'm sitting right now, actually. Because I don't work in like downtown Seattle very much or in the condo market very much, this year hasn't felt all that different to me. Obviously, I'm very sick of wearing masks. I like big groups. I like people. And so, yeah, no more than five people at the house, kind of a drag. I really don't think for me it's changed my business that much. I have started posting videos of walkthroughs of houses on YouTube and sending them to clients who are either remote or in the beginning of the pandemic certainly folks that were just really paranoid and really worried about getting together in person. I actually had a pregnant wife during the pandemic as well. So I was a little bit that nervous person at times. And, you know, I think we're going to go back to normal, except that I do think that things like Matterport 3D scans are going to, they've obviously become much more normal. I've been using them for years, but other brokers have really embraced that. And I know my clients really appreciate when those are available on listings. And I, I think that clients who are remote are going to have a much higher level of confidence in the buying process than they did before this was kind of normal. A lot of people are buying houses without seeing them. I had a couple of clients do it last year. I will say it was terrifying. I had one closing where the client saw the house for the first time. Actually, I had two where a client saw the house for the first time at the final walkthrough. And, you know, my heart was racing for them as we entered the house, just thinking this could be nothing like what they expected. You know, there's just no replacement for a physical walkthrough of a house. What media was done? Like, did it have photographs, videos, Matterport, floor plans, all that stuff? Was it staged? Was it virtually staged? Like, what was the presentation that was online that made your client feel comfortable? enough to put an offer on it without seeing it in person. So there was no 3D walkthrough for the, the one I'm thinking of in particular. There was dismal staging, minimal and really poor staging. Of course, your clients always pour over the Redfin listing and click through the photos a thousand times. I did several video walkthroughs. My client uh, was in California. And so we did probably four or five video walkthroughs, including two where I just sort of on my own was filming and you know noting every goofy sound um, every squeaky floor and just trying to pretend like my clients there and just sort of say anything that felt exceptional in any way that that would be hard to get from the photos or from just a standard walkthrough um, you know you can't smell a house on video and this was kind of a grandma house it hadn't been lived in in a while and certainly the windows hadn't been cracked in a while it's a great house i was thrilled for my clients in the end they're going to do a big project over there, but it was quite a process. Definitely a lot of time by myself at the house on Google Duo and FaceTime and just recording. I'm so curious what their first reaction was then. You know, it's closing, they're walking in for the first yeah. time. 
What was their feedback to you? The most memorable remark from their walkthrough was just the dimensions and the sizes of spaces were so hard to figure out in a virtual tour. The view's always better oh, in person. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. So there's something. Yes. I like the fact that you spent time with the creaky floors or the that you tried to think of all the things that weren't going to be evident in this video tour. Yeah, that was a big part of it. They also did a remote inspection. It was still a pretty wild market, obviously. We had the opportunity to have an inspection contingency and sort of slow roll our inspection, which was which was really nice, you know, in a remote transaction where everything just feels so high stakes, and you really don't want to make any mistakes. You know, we also did, you know, a four hour home inspection and had an exhaustive conversation between, you know, me, the buyers and the home inspector. Two yeah. things. Yeah. One is a new app idea. I want to do a Matterport camera that also records and produces the smells that are in the house. <laughs> um, and then number two, Such if the house had been staged well, their sense of scale would have been so much better because they could say like, oh, a couch fits against that wall. Oh, a king size bed fits in that room. And people don't notice it outright, but intuitively they start to get a feel for, oh, there's two twin beds in that room. I get an idea of how big that is. And it really takes a lot of that surprise out of the scale issue. And abysmal totally. staging does the exact opposite where they stick a chair and a rug in the room and they're like, you know, now you can tell how big it is. No clue at all. Definitely that you can pen be very helpful or hurtful. If you were not a real estate agent, all of a sudden one day the entire industry just goes away. You can't be real estate agent anymore. Are you going tennis pro? What are you doing? <laughs> you know, I have thought in a, in, a, in a real desperate scenario, it would be fun. It would. I was in the best shape of my life when I taught tennis. I would love to be a home builder if I could find some way to figure that out. My wife asked me the other day, if you could be instantly qualified and employed at something different, <laughs> what, what would it be? And I, as a broker, you see so many goofy things that builders do or homeowners, you know, when they remodel a house. I think it would just be so fun to control the inventory and be a builder and put out something you're super proud of that you know the market's going to absolutely love. And just to do one house a year, two houses a year, have a small shop, especially in my neighborhood of West Seattle, just to feel like I'm building something. That's the funny thing about real estate agents. You know, you don't actually create anything. You, you, you know, you facilitate a transaction. You're the process expert. Nothing is produced. That kind of gets to you. You want to build something with your hands and, and do something that you can see at the end. And so I think home building would be a blast. Amy, same question. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no pressure. Um. <laughs> <laughs> You know that I feel like it's a hard one f for me right now because I haven't been in this oh, business. Oh, you just very did long. that. So you just ended a career. <laughs> this <Yeah>. was <laughs> this is my side mm -hmm. hustle, or this was the thing that I wanted to transition to. But I totally hear that chat about the creativity piece of this. I love the idea of not only not replicating all the weird things you see when we're in houses, but then also, you know, every once in a while you walk into a house and you're like, oh, what a brilliant idea. I want to bring that home. So I love the idea yeah. of building. If I could just be instantly qualified for something, Justin, yeah. if we're yeah. just going to like Anything. go way yeah. out. Um, I have always made jokes about the fact that I would just love to be a rock star. <laughs> I would just love to be a musician that was just like able to quiet a room with my amazing voice. And I'm a bit tone deaf. So we're long ways away from that. Well, um, we didn't say it had know, to be realistic. But... I mean, because <laughs> yeah, my answer you. is swimsuit model. <laughs> Never going to happen. A second choice might be flight attendant, like international flight attendant. There's something very glamorous about like oh. the um, like Air China when the flight attendants mm -hmm. walk through the airport. Did you know that they wear high heels in the airport and they change to flats when they get to the airplane? I want that oh. to be one of my rules. Amazing. You know? That's awesome. <laughs> and a scarf. I can see you yes. in a scarf. Yes, absolutely. It's yeah. all about the uniform yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, so Chad, tell us about the absolute worst day you've had in real estate. The worst day... I've had in the business was oddly pre-pandemic, but also a situation where client had not seen the house. So I was working with a couple. The wife was out of town. House came on the market. Super, super hot market. I think that house had an offer review date. We went to the house. We're seeing houses get snatched up before the review date, or uh, and we've lost out on a few multiple offer situations by this time. Husband comes through the house with me. It's checking every box. Great price for the house. He decides. 
let's make an early offer. We can get my wife in here later. I know she'll love it. We, I think we walked through on FaceTime with her. We put the house under contract. Days later, the wife is back in town. We go through the house. I think I just picked up the earnest money deposit, $30,000 or something like that. Sitting in my car, a check for $30,000 to the title company. I take the wife through the house. She's sort of quiet. She is uh, taking it in, but doesn't really say anything that worries me. We go our separate ways. And, and by the way, we have no contingencies. I get back in the car. I start driving back to my office. I get a phone call and he says, Chad, can you hold on to that earnest money check? Don't deposit the earnest money. So my heart falls out of the car. I'm like, I can't stop the train. Your earnest money will be at risk or I'm going to be in a very uneasy position here holding your earnest money. Basically, you know, it ended up okay in the end. A moment of panic. They've lived in the house now for four or five years. Remodeled the house. They closed the deal, <laughs> but but not without a moment of this is the wrong house. I should have been there from the beginning. It was a horrible day. <laughs> What's the rule around like you have the earnest money check in your hands and you're on your way? Like, is there a rule? Like, fortunately, I didn't have to learn uh, exactly <laughs> what happens. <laughs> In the end, there's a, you know, there's a few days you have to deposit earnest money, giving it to your broker, actually, which I, I never handle earnest money anymore, by the way. That's a mm. good lesson I learned. Giving it to your broker gives you a few more days. So I think we held on to it for another day while they hemmed and hawed about what to do. If they didn't deliver earnest money, we probably would have ended up having a good spat with the sellers. I don't actually think that they would have lost $30,000. I think it would have been less than that. Fortunately, all, all hypothetical. Now that we've picked up your heart off the floor and <laughs> yeah. now we can fill it with sunshine and rainbows. Tell us about the best day. Tell us about the day that you were like, this is the reason I am here. My wife and I were living in, on Mercer Island, my hometown. We had remodeled our house. We were settled in and thought we might stick around for a long time, but sort of had this incessant pull back to West Seattle where we had moved from and where a bunch of our friends from college live. And one day in a low inventory environment, I was just browsing Zillow for sale by owners and Craigslist for sale by owners in desperation, trying to find homes that I could sell to my clients because they were all looking for places and nothing was working out. And I just ran across this place in West Seattle that just looked really cute. It was a craftsman house built in the 1920s on a nice lot, quiet little part of Gatewood. I was like, I don't know exactly who this is for, but I just, I should go see this. And I reached out to the person over Craigslist. I walked through the house with them and I was like, I need to call my wife because I think we should buy this house. And it was totally Aww. not in our plan. We had not even looked at a house. I mean, again, we were only a year into our old house and she came and she had the exact same experience and we bought a house off Craigslist. Wow. And we've lived there ever since. I <laughs> yeah. love it. That is if we great. spend our lives being like, do not ever FISBO, do not ever force sell yeah. my owner ever. And then here you no. are like, you know, here it happens. Yeah. It's so great. <laughs> the right thing. Totally. I, I tell my clients, don't count on it, but yeah. don't rule it out. Yeah. That's Perfect. Wow. That's a great story, Chad. <laughs> uh, Chad, where can people find you? Uh, my last name is a bear to spell, but my website's chaddericks.com. My last name is Dyrick X. So D-I-E-R-I-C-K-X. So chaddericks.com. Just hit me up if you are looking for a house in West Seattle. I'd love to help you. Chad Derricks is a real estate agent in the Seattle area with Windermere. And uh, he's been a great friend of ours and a loyal client for years. We're so happy to have you on the, on the show. Thank you so much, Chad. Amy, do you want to show him back to the green room? We've got a new hot tub installed this year. So we're really excited for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Right this way, Chad. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <It> super fun. <laughs> Amy, you were back there for a long time, right? How's the hot tub? The hot tub is delightful, and I had a bagel. I mean, they looked really good. And Chad wasn't <laughs> going to finish them all, so, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm going to wipe the crumbs off my face here so we can keep going with this. <laughs> when I was a little kid, I lived in Carson City, Nevada for a while, which is kind of like the armpit of Nevada. And yes. Nevada is the armpit of the United States. Yes. So I remember going to a store, and they were selling bagels that had ham and cheese hunks in them, which, like, a bagel is a traditional Jewish food. Food. And like ham is the one thing you're not supposed to eat when you are Jewish and you are not supposed to mix dairy and meat in oh, the same God. food product. And so to, <laughs> it was like an abomination of Jewish food, the ham and cheese bagel. Oh, oh, <laughs> Justin. This is the white trash roots that I came there from. There we yeah. go. How delightful is Chad Derricks? Chad is wonderful. How can you be that good looking and that nice? Like this is just wrong. It's ridiculous. I just loved hearing about his first years and kind of cranking it out with Redfin and then and then moving into a different way of operating his business and the value on both sides of that. I mean, it sounds like he got so much from those first years of high volume stuff. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed his story. The way that he presents it was such a positive attitude that like, hey, these have 
all been good steps for me. Yeah. You know, I move from one thing to the other, but I think it takes a special person to not hold anger. Like we talked about that in the first segment. Like, how do you not hold anger? Because whenever you leave a job, you leave because you're frustrated at some point. Yeah. But he was really good at at identifying the positive things that happened in both of the places that he's been. So carrying that gratitude with him for sure. We should totally send him like a little something, something to just say, thanks for being on. Oh, uh, I love Season two, episode one. I love that idea. It's something that happens a lot in the real estate industry that I don't see happening in a lot of the other industries that like Mm. there is this really big push towards gratitude and showing people appreciation. What is your gratitude program look like? I think that's been actually one of the things that I have enjoyed tremendously. I'm an appreciator. Like I love to, I'm a note writer. I'm a, I'm a phone caller. I'm a thank you kind of person generally. And I think in this business, I have really enjoyed the opportunity with transactions to find a really personal way of saying thank you to somebody for their trust and for their business. You know, you spend all this intense time in a, in a transaction with somebody, you know, maybe you knew them before. Hopefully often we know where referrals come from, but I, I feel like there's just this, it's a special intense time. It's people are making really big decisions and there's a lot of stress. And so I feel like there's this crazy intimacy that develops often between myself and, and clients if things are going well. And so getting to know them and figuring out like through the course of the transaction, I catch myself thinking about like, oh, that would be a great thank you gift at the end of all this, you know, or you pay attention to what their kids snack foods they like to eat in the car and you make sure you include that in the basket of things that you leave in the house when you're giving them the keys. Remember a day when like, you know, real estate agents used to have 50 brand new barbecues in their garage. And every time somebody bought a house, like, here's your barbecue. You know, there was like zero (laughs) thought that went into it. So you're buying like personalized gifts for each and every person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I really, I mean, I love that part of it. I will say that there are occasions where I'm doing things like things that are maybe a little bit more practical, helping Mm -hmm. somebody get set up. If there's a scenario where we think there might be some systems that might need some love in the house sooner than later, I have done a couple home warranties in situations where I feel like they're really useful. Um, And clients get really excited about those, which is also really fun. It's a little less personal. Uh, You know, I had a client who was moving into her own space and she was a really avid paddle boarder. And she was all of a sudden finding herself like one of the things about her new space was she was going to have room for more paddle board stuff. And so I got her a gift certificate from, you know, one of the local stores that Next Adventure that has all kinds of things. And it just feels delightful when you can just nail it, when you know you're going to nail it for somebody. And not only have they done this big transaction, which hopefully has turned out really well, but then you're also, you know, it's a little icing on the cake. I love that piece. Yeah, that's very cool. We don't do a birthday gift thing. We actually don't reach out to our clients on birthdays Mm -hmm. because with very, very busy people like real estate agents, they get overwhelmed on birthdays. You'll have 50 to 100 to, you know, 500 text phone calls and emails on your birthday saying happy birthday because everybody's recorded your birthday. You become just one of the millions of people who contacted you. And so we try to find weird and obscure holidays to celebrate. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of our most original gifts that we ever sent out was on the night of the second Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump debate. We had been through the first one. It was a total shit show. And it was the second one. We sent out these bags that were debate survival kits. And they had... like a microwave popcorn thingy in them, two sets of earplugs and two little tiny airplane bottles of tequila. And it was like, (laughs) and it didn't matter who you loved or who you hated. Either way, you were like, fuck yeah, these people get it. You know, all you wanted was like, get drunk, eat popcorn and put in your earplugs. And, um, you know, these just like little stupid gifts that go, I think this year we celebrated Chinese New Year's and we sent out nine sachets of tea in a little red Chinese takeout box. And nine is a very lucky number in Chinese culture and it was a little car that's like Kung Hee Fat Choi like happy year of the ox and it's just a little something like you know that nobody sent out gifts for happy for Chinese New Year this year it was just us and so we're always trying to do something like real estate agents are notorious gift givers so you guys are really hard to buy for Because oh you've done it all. You've, not, you've done every trick in the book. And so we're always trying to find something to like give out to be like, hey, here's a little something, something. In our offices, we have a program where every one of our employees fills out a list of their five favorite things. And it's not like you have to write down five gifts that you want. It's just five favorite things. So like a typical list might be, I enjoy time with my wife. I really love beer. I, I love Taco Tuesday. I love football. And I love the amazing race. I think that's the second. <laughs> 
second time I brought up The Amazing Race in this podcast. Um, if their number one thing was like wife on their list, we might buy them like an adventure for them and their wife to like go to a spa day together or, oh. you know, go on a golfing adventure or something like that where they get to spend some time with their wife. And so we're buying them things that relate specifically to what they like instead yes. of being like the company gift this year is a barbecue. <laughs> Yeah, barbecue. Everybody gets a barbecue. You get a barbecue. You get a barbecue. If I had Oprah money, I'd just buy everybody a car. But, you know, that ain't how it goes around here. So it ends up being something that's just like a little bit more personal. Just thinking about people's wants and needs. Just a touch. What's your favorite gift that you've ever given? I just did a six-month gift for some folks. And I do. I usually do a card or do a little something. Okay, what's a six-month gift? Oh, they've been in the house for six months? Yes, they've been in the house for six months. And these were folks that I, I think, as you know, Justin, I'm a crazy dog lover. I mean, generally animal lover, but you like I, only crazy dogs, <laughs> only crazy dogs. Yeah. My <laughs> wife thinks so, but I, I'm trying to broaden. My, <laughs> yeah, actually she's the one with the crazy dogs. So, um, <laughs> I love dogs and this client, these clients that I worked with, we really connected. Their animals were sort of a part of their buying process and we'd walk into a house and they'd be like, oh, the yard's not big enough. And, you know, we just had lots of conversations about animals. And she told me this totally heartbreaking story about how they'd gotten their cat. Basically, she was driving down the street and saw somebody throwing kittens into the bushes and she stopped and gathered the kittens. And so we had this sort of foundation. So for their six month anniversary gift, I actually made a donation to a pretty amazing rescue organization out of Oregon called the Northwest Dog Project. And I spend a lot of time crying on their Instagram because they adopt senior dogs and dogs that are obviously going to have a really hard time being rehomed. I just sent that in the mail a couple of days ago and I printed out some information and was just like, this made me think of you guys and I hope you're enjoying your new home and I know you're animal lovers in the same way that I am. So I felt like I got to do something that I knew they would love and all also, I got to participate in the community with something that's also important to me. So it was like doubly satisfying. And the organization got <laughs> yes. a donation. So yes. it's a win, win, win. That's yeah. a that's a hard find to do a triple yeah. win. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Now, clearly you don't just sit down and like remember all of these dates. So like, you know, somebody, one of your clients is now in a house six months later. Do you have some kind of a system or a, a CRM or a, a client relationship management tool that you use to remember these things? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually working on the CRM in my database as a newer agent, still kind of trying to pull those pieces together. I've been in this a year, so I can, if I need to, I can go back and track my transactions still. I've got a loose finger on right now and it's not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to do that for much longer, which is awesome. Don't get me wrong. No complaints there. I also find that the the title companies I work with will sometimes send out reminders like six month anniversary. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And then I go Mm -hmm. and, you know, I would have gotten the reminder a day or two later. And like year anniversaries, those are definitely ones I want to track for folks. So I, I have a handful of those also on my phone. So I'm still getting I'm still getting my systems down. I was reading a report the other day that said something to the effect of that your level of happiness is directly associated to your level of gratitude, that the more you can be appreciative of what you have, the happier you will be. And we have done things in our life. We have canceled all subscriptions to all catalogs. We have tried to remove all advertising from our life, which is really hard to do because advertising mm-hmm. is everywhere. And a lot of what that is about is that it's made us more appreciative of what we have versus always thinking about what we want because having your brain on like that coverlet that you really wanted to buy or you know that lamp that was so pretty you spend a lot of time wanting and not being happy with what you have and appreciation is literally the emotion of being happy with what you have whether that's a relationship a person in your life or a thing if we can concentrate on that the happier we are in our lives and I gotta tell you it's been really effective I used to spend hours looking at Pottery Barn catalogs thinking if I could only have that apothecary chest, (laughs) I would be a happy person. And I got to tell you, man, it doesn't make you happy. It really doesn't. Absolutely not. And I think for so many of us, the past year has been so incredibly challenging. I have spent a lot of time trying to hone my gratitude skills and be really grateful for the small moments I have that are meaningful. And I think for me, a big piece of that is also putting that back out into the world then, because it is, you know, it's something that theoretically you're doing for the other person, giving a a closing gift to say, thank you for your business. And I hope this delights you, but also it makes me feel warm inside. Gratitude and happiness are, are linked. I absolutely believe that. Speaking of gratitude, we have some people that we need to thank. Nicole 
Durkin is our new producer. Nicole, you're doing a fantastic job. We're loving this. Thank you so much to Richie, our editor. He does a fantastic job. Our music is composed and performed by Joff Metz. You can find him at fivestarguitars.com. Amy Romberg, I am so thankful. This was your first show, and I got to tell you, dude, you did not fuck it up. You did such a good job. <laughs> Just don't awesome. fuck it up. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Where can people find you? I can be found at amyromberg.com. Thank you so much to our special guest today, Chad Derricks. You can find him at chadderricks.com. That's Derricks. It's X. So D-I-E-R-I-C-K and then the letter X, chadderricks.com. You can find him there. You can find us at spade-archer.com. If you want to reach out to us, you can email us at behind the yard sign at spade-archer.com. It's B-T-Y-S at spade-archer.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Let's hear your stories. Thanks again so much to our listeners. We'll see you next time behind the yard sign. This production of Behind the Yard Sign was brought to you live from the Spade and Archer Studios. Spade and Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.